um, for those of us that are up here speaking, that we didn't say what you wanted to say, um, nothing more, nothing less, and for all of us, God, that we would um, just have the hearts to hear what, um, what you're saying to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, so my name's Steph. Um, going to be starting us off. So as Matt said, we're going to be talking um, sort of about what it means to, to love locally, um, just to love the people in our community. And so each of us has just a little something to say about that. Um, I'm going to be talking um, about human trafficking. Um, and so for anyone who might not know, human trafficking is the illegal buying and selling of human beings, um, usually either for sexual exploitation or um, through forced labor. Um, so there's millions of slaves in the world right now, actually which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, most of them are exploited as sexual slaves, and a lot of them are children under the age of 18. Um, sometimes when we talk about stuff like this, like huge numbers like that, or global problems, I think it's really easy for stuff like that to feel super far, far away or removed from us. Um, but one of the really difficult things about this particular issue is that it hits really close to home for us. Um, there's over 100,000 estimated slaves in the United States, and North Carolina itself is actually eighth in the nation for human trafficking, um, which is pretty crazy. Uh, one of the reasons for that is that um, we have a lot of major highway systems in North Carolina, and traffickers can use those to, um, to sell or to buy people. And so um, I-40 is actually one of the hot spots for that kind of crime, which like, just blows me away, because that's literally right in my neighborhood um, down the street. Um, so we know that our God is not a God of slavery, but of freedom. Um, and most importantly, Christ offers us freedom from, from our sin and from death, um, an eternal kind of freedom. But the Bible is also really clear that God cares about um, about earthly freedom, too. And I think like, one of the best examples of that is in Exodus, um, when the Israelites were enslaved by Egypt. And it says um, in Exodus 2 that they groaned beneath the burden of slavery, and they cried out for help, and their pleas for deliverance rose up to God. It says that he looked down on the Israelites and he felt deep concern for their welfare. He later says in chapter 3 um, that we can be sure that he has seen the misery of his people and heard their cries for deliverance from their slave drivers. Um, so we don't always hear or see the suffering of people around us, especially when they suffer in silence or behind closed doors. Um, but their pain isn't hidden from God. He hears and sees every one of them, um, and he cares. And he asks us to care too. Um, so one of the, actually the biggest and most important way that we um, we love people who are victims of trafficking here in Love Chapel Hill is we have um, an orange group um, that gets together to, to pray. It's called Freedom Prayer. Thank you. Um, on Mondays at 8.15 at the Chapel of the Cross. Um, and actually, probably do ask Matt about it, but um, it's kind of cool. Love Chapel Hill is like a Wesleyan church, and there's like a long legacy of um, being abolitionist and anti-slavery, I'm sure um, but, so yeah, so that's the biggest thing we do. Monday is 815, Chapel of the Cross. We just lift people up. We, um, we pray for, for the victims of trafficking, for the perpetrators, for law enforcement, other organizations. Um, yeah, we're called as yeah, believers to pray for them and to lift them up to the God that loves them and um, has the power to, to change their circumstances. Um, so a number of other ways to be involved as well. There's like faith-based organizations, campus organizations. There's local movements. Um, a lot of them are going to be out there, I think. So if you're interested, definitely hit up some of those. Um, and if you also just have interest in knowing more, asking questions, or being involved, um, please come talk to me. I'm Allison, um, and 
there was, you know, the cold. So, uh, but uh, I'm going to talk to you today about, uh, I'm just going to look at, uh, I'm going to talk to you today about uh, early church and kind of delving into the word and looking at how um, Acts kind of describes what service looked like in the earliest church. And so, we're looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 46. There's like a lot in these three verses that I cannot possibly talk about in the very short time that I have. So if you have any questions, come up as often as you want to talk about this. I'd love to talk to you more about um, specifically these three verses. Um, but basically, uh, this is after uh, Jesus has ascended to heaven, uh, the Holy Spirit has descended onto the people of is describing this earliest believers. And so this is what it says. It says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, uh, praising God and having favor with all the people. And so let's look at um, this phrase, they had all things in common. I think a lot of times we'll misinterpret that or misunderstand it to believe that, you know, all the Christians were the same. And how many times do we do that today? Stereotyping people. So they're part of that group, and they must be this way. Um, but that can get us into trouble really quickly because our God is a diverse God. Um, he is, he created diversity. And so... Um, of course, he wants us to be diverse. You know, our church is supposed to be diverse. And God made man in his image. And so in each and every one of us, God, some aspect of God's image is revealed through us. And only if we come together in our diversity, in our strengths and our weaknesses, will we be able to realize more and more of God's image through the church. Um, and if we look at Jesus, this is exactly what he did. Um, his disciples were really diverse. Um, he had everything from everybody from an anarchist to a government official, even women unofficially. Um, the people he served, uh, you know, you had people from different racial backgrounds, different cultures, different religions, different different places in life that you know culture, culturally and, and society was saying. You shouldn't be hanging out with them. Um, alcoholics and prostitutes, tax collectors. Um, these were the people that society was saying, no, they're, they're no good, stay away. But those were Jesus' friends. Those were the people Jesus not only served, but he hung out with them. Isn't that what we should be doing in our own lives? If that's what Jesus did, then that's what we should do. Um, he was breaking the bread and he was sharing meals with these people. And um, and that's what the early church was doing, too, breaking bread in their homes. And when they're saying this, it's not just food, sharing food with each other. They're sharing in each other's lives. There's this intimate relationship that's built when you share a meal with somebody. Because um, you're, you're sharing your soul with somebody else. Um, and it's in that way that you start to hear more and more about this person's life and um, know what they need. And 
in that way, you're more likely to actually do something about it. Um, and this is where this idea of loving radically comes from. Um, it's building these relationships, these ties with diverse groups of people, with diverse people. Um, and it, you can have a diversity, but if you don't have the relationship, it doesn't matter. And you can have a relationship, but if you don't have a diversity, then you're definitely missing something. Um, and it reminds me of uh, this quote by Jane Addams, uh, who was an early social worker back in the, the late 1800s who um, moved into the slums of Chicago in search of war. And um, this quote, she's, she's talking about the early church, and this is what she says. The spectacle of the Christians loving all men was the most astounding Rome had ever seen. They were eager to sacrifice themselves for the weak, the children, and the aged. They identified themselves with slaves and did not avoid the plague. They longed to share the common lot that they might receive the constant revelation. It was a new treasure which the early Christians added to the sum of all treasures, a joy hitherto unknown in the world, the joy of finding the Christ which lieth in each man, but which no man can unfold, save his fellow church. The joy of finding Christ in each person, each man, but which no man can see except his fellow church. It's a rich, rich statement. This entire quote is so rich, but it's this idea of as we, you know, Culture tells our society tells us that these people are different from us, that they're not like us. Which reminds me, just like we were saying the other week, Elijah was just like us, right? And so we start to see similarities, more and more similarities and differences. And what we're seeing in those similarities is in each person, revealed through that person. And in that, we create these bonds, these intimate bonds, and we grow not only closer in our friendship with these people, but also in our relationship with Christ. And so, because we're, we're loving one another, because there's friendship and that love, um, and because that as we're sharing in each other's lives, we start to hear about these needs. We don't just know about these needs, but we actually want to do something about it. We actually pray and do something about these needs. We serve one another. Because that's what Jesus did for us. He served in a way that was relational, personal, private, intimate, and he still does. But he also served in a way that was missional that was public and action-oriented. And where these two fuse together, it's where we come up with this idea called relational missions. This idea that we should serve in a way where we humble ourselves, where we submit ourselves to God's will in our lives, and we serve in a way that is relational and intimate and personal, but in a way that is missional and action-oriented in the public, out in society and in our church. And so it, it it leaves me asking, what if, what would it look like if we did this? You know, it reminds me of the, the first part of that quote where it says the spectacle.
horrible question of an amen is the most astounding Rome had ever seen. The Romans were so confused by this because they hadn't seen it before. Um, because it doesn't make sense. Without Christ, this doesn't make sense. Why would you love in this kind of way? And so, and, and that's why the, the early church was having favor with all the people, because it's an attractive thing. It's a, you know, who, who isn't intrigued by this idea of this kind of relational and missional love, and this, this radical love and this relational and missional service? And so I asked, what if it, what would it look like if you love radically? What if you love Chapel Hill and serve Chapel Hill missionally, relationally, and missionally? What if, what would it look like? Both the church love Chapel Hill and the town of Chapel Hill. Maybe one day they would be spectacle of the Christians loving all men was the most astounding Chapel Hill had ever seen. Thanks, guys. Um, so I'm going to tell a story. Um, so back in my um, back in my sophomore year, I was studying one night with three of my. Hang on, let me fix. Um, yeah, back in my sophomore year, I was studying one night with three of my very best friends in the world, David, Christine, and Lane. Um, the four of us back then were co-chairs of Hope, uh, one of the organizations sitting and joining us here today. Um, earlier that evening, we just finished up with one of our monthly community dinners that we used to host over at University Methodist Church. Um, as usual, we would stay late afterwards to chat and clean up. And so then after that, you know, late in the evening, we would go back together to campus wide to study. Um, and it had reached that point in the evening where we all kind of needed a break, and we knew we were going to be in it for a long haul, so we needed provisions. So naturally, being after 11 o'clock, we went to the only place that you could go to get cheer wine and chocolate and other necessary things like that, which is Walgreens. Um, so on our way back, from Walgreens, and we're walking back past University Methodist Church where we had had the dinner earlier that night. And there on the lawn in the front of the church, we saw something that stopped us cold. It was a man dressed all in denim, scruffled with a white beard, sleeping on the lawn. Now, we had seen people sleeping outside before. We knew all too well the reality of homelessness in this town. But we had never seen anything like this, because this man was just lying there. No blankets, no backpack, nothing. Just his body curled up for warmth in the middle of the lawn. It was heartbreaking. And what made it worse was us realizing that we had just met this guy a few hours ago. He had come to the community dinner that night for the first time, and each one of us had spent some time getting to know him. He was warm and friendly and funny and grandfatherly the kind of man that you fall in love with right away. We'll call him Pop for now. So here we are, handfuls of cheer wine and chocolate, and here's Pop alone with nothing, lying in the middle of the lawn. Immediately, my friend Christine, being the kind of person that she is, 
run this all back to his dorm room where we gather up blankets and a sleeping bag that he doesn't need anymore. And we hightail it back up to Franklin Street. When we get there, we find that Pop is no longer laying on the lawn and he is no longer alone. Another UNC student, a girl who we sort of knew, had actually had the same idea as us and was there giving him a blanket of her own. So we walked up to him and we showed Pop the additional blankets that we had brought. And Pop just looks at us and he shakes his head and then in a voice that's choking back tears, he says, well, God's just got angels everywhere, doesn't he? He's looking after me still. He went on then to tell us a little about his life, where he was from, how he ended up here, why he was living on the street. He was brutally honest with us about some of the mistakes he had made and some of the choices that had put him into this situation. But for us, there was zero condemnation in that. You know, we were still heartbroken looking at him. Because here's this man, this lovable man, who was praising God and thanking us. And yeah, we had given him these blankets, and that was nice. But what we knew deep down was that at the end of the night, those blankets changed nothing. Because in a little while, we were going to walk back to campus, back to our dorm rooms, back to these rows upon rows of empty class buildings, back to this place that's famous for its brilliance and its justice, light, and liberty. And Pop was still going to be here, sleeping on the lawn alone. But Pop went on telling his story, and bit by bit he explained how in everything, every bad choice, every heartache, God was still there. He was insistent on this. We talked for a long time, and over and over again, he told us, crying eventually, that God had never left him. God would never abandon him. And more than anything, Pop was grateful, and his tears were tears of joy. For us, this was hard to swallow, but it was beautiful, too. It was one of those conversations, and I hope that we've all had one like this, where you feel like there's something deeper going on in the conversation itself. <laughs> where the words that are being spoken are pulling back some kind of curtain and giving you a glimpse of a world that you can't normally see. It was one of those feelings that you can't quite explain, but you cannot deny. For me, it was like waking up from a dream or stepping out of our world or stumbling through a wardrobe and finding myself in Narnia. <laughs> we walked away from that eventually. And even though we all felt something extremely powerfully good there, we were still heartbroken. One of us started crying, and so there on the campus brick, we huddled together, and we just suddenly started praying. For Pop, for Hope, for the town, for the church, for ourselves, um, and then for all those other people that we knew were like Pop that night, sleeping out there somewhere alone. It was hands down the most desperate, real, and honest prayer I've ever been a part of, and it felt good. We made it back to the campus Y eventually, and one of us said something about how hard it was going to be after an experience like that to go back to homework in the real world. But then we had a thought. Maybe the truth was that what we had just experienced and felt out there with Pop was the real, real world. In fact, that world felt a thousand times more real than what we were doing with our daily normal lives. So we decided that night that maybe what it meant to believe in a God like ours and a God like Pop was to do everything we could to change this normal world into that one, to make this world real. So looking back, there are several things that I continue to take away about that night. The first is this. God is with the poor.
God's wish to the marginalized and the forgotten and the oppressed and the brokenhearted. We see this over and over and over again in scripture. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. God is near to the widows and the orphans. Blessed are the poor, the persecuted, the meek, the hungry. It's kind of a strange thing, this blessing. Um, I, I don't think that it means that God just likes these people better than others, or that God is always going to fix the situations of people who are hurting. What I think it means is that God is with those people in the same way that Jesus, when Lazarus died, before he raised him, was with his friends, weeping alongside them. God is with them like that, maybe unseen, maybe unmoving, maybe not doing what we wish he would yet, but he cared, and he was there. This, I think, is a mystery, but it is a good one. Second thing, when we step out of our normal, everyday lives and intentionally involve ourselves in the story of someone who is hurting, forgotten, or in need, when we do that, we are stepping into the heart of God, and we are becoming who we were most truly meant to be. Listen to the scripture from Isaiah. God here is speaking to the people of Israel about what he considers to be true religious observance. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, he says, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient, the ancient ruins and raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Here and throughout the whole of scripture, God makes it absolutely clear that he is passionate about justice and crazy about the people who the rest of the world has passed by. And I think what we see in this specific passage is God trying to convince his people that if we really want to know him, if we really want to honor him and live with him, then we need to get in on what he is passionate about. When we begin to spend ourselves on behalf of the poor, we get caught up in what God is already doing carried along in the current of God's hopes and dreams for the planet. When we get out there and spend time and tears at the ragged edges of the world, we start to find heaven breaking in on us. We become a well-watered garden, a spring of unfailing water, a community of repairers and rebuilders. In other words, the best versions of ourselves. One last thing. I realized that night something that I wouldn't be able to put into words until I heard it from Sam Wells, the former dean of Duke Chapel. Wells has said that there are several ways that people think about serving those in need. There is the working for model, where basically you are the person providing all the help and the resources. And then there's the working with model, where you are a partner bringing your assistance and guidance to the table. And then there is the being with model. And this, I think, is what Jesus calls us to do. This is relational missions. In this model, there's a recognition that we can't fix everything, and maybe we don't have to, because there's still something infinitely valuable about just relating to a person, just being there with them in the struggle. This model also recognizes that healing and wholeness and redemption are a two-way street. 
yes, Pop needed those blankets that night, but maybe even more, we needed him. What we experienced that night was born not out of service, but out of togetherness and out of love. And this, I think, is why God puts the call to care for those in need in the terms that he does, telling us not to turn away from our own flesh and blood. These people are your family, he says. They need you, and you need them. And maybe more importantly, there is no you and them. There is just us. Coming to Love Chapel Hill now for I guess pretty near about a year. Uh, the Lord gave me a cup of coffee here at Love Chapel Hill out front in the day, and it gave me the first opportunity to meet many of y'all. A lot of your faces have changed. We see as it is, there's a lot of coming and going here. And God bless you all for that and for willing to go and to be here and being a big part of my life in particular. Um, I've been extremely blessed by this and your presence, and um, I can't match a whole lot of what my, uh, my friends here already said, but backing by everything that they've already said, um, Love Chapel Hill is probably one of the finest congregations that I've ever been part of in my life. I'm 57 and I've been around for a little while, um, and I've had a chance to see a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting and um, I'm keeping it kind of short at this point. Um, it's it's uh, really a, nothing but a bunch of thank yous to all of you. To Matt, to Justin, to Allison, to David, to all the rest of my friends here. And I've got so many names that I can't remember them all. And um, I just want to thank you very much for accepting the Lord bringing you into mine, and um, I just hope you can become uh, more, a lot better friends, and go a lot further and deeper in our relationships, and um, I just want to thank you for letting me be here today, and uh, that's uh, about, as, about as sweet and short as I can
hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. O divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to be consoled, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying 